0: Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. That's an old famous adage. I don't even know who it was who maybe first coined it or expressed it publicly. But that's a message you hear a lot. You hear people say that, just sort of in jest sometimes. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. As a matter of fact, it's so well known that you might be surprised just how many stories that you love, both fiction and nonfiction. Essentially, the, the plot of the story almost follows this adage. Right? Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. How many stories are dedicated to someone or some protagonist thinking that if, if I could just have this or if my life circumstances could just be like this, then everything would be better. And then what happens? They get it and their life not only doesn't get better, a lot of times it gets worse. The very thing that they wanted, that they thought would fulfill them, that would make their lives better actually ended up making their lives far more Difficult. I think about my wife who, uh, if you were to ask her, she's very open about this. She wanted to get married much earlier in her life than she did. She wanted to be much younger when she first got married. And so as time was going on, she was just begging and praying for a husband. And then she finally got him. <laughs> and it didn't take the full two years of our marriage so far for her to, I'm sure, think how many days. You know, singleness wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. This adage is going to describe the next phase of Israel's journey as we jump back into 1 Samuel chapter 8. We are going to see the beginning of them learning this lesson the hard way. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we will read the entire chapter together, if you would follow along with me, for this is the very word of God. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is a crucial turning point in our narrative. We took a break last week to focus on the resurrection, so I know we've kind of been out of Samuel for a week. If you recall, the last time we we're in our sermon series, in chapter 7, there was a great repentance, a beautiful exhibition of Israel repenting and turning towards God, Samuel leading them and interceding for them, and then God fights their battle against the Philistines and conquers the Philistines, and then the text ends by reminding us that, on the whole, Samuel has this amazing and beautiful uh, ministry over all of Israel. But now there's a turning point in chapter 8. Uh, the text seems to skip over many years of bliss under Samuel's leadership, and we now have another dilemma for Israel. And the reason this is so important is because I don't necessarily expect you to recall this off the top of your heads, but when we very first began the sermon series, and I preached a sermon just introducing us to the story of First Samuel, I mentioned how there were three primary characters that this book showcases, and it's Samuel, Saul, and David. And so far, we've only been introduced to our first primary character, Samuel. But because of the events here, we are soon going to be introduced to our second main character, Saul. Now, why are we going to be introduced to Saul soon? Well, because the primary theme of the book of Samuel is this thing of kingship. That's why I I titled this entire sermon series, God Made a King. The whole purpose of the book of Samuel is to show us how the king of Israel was established. The king of Israel, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is very important typologically in the New Testament. But it's interesting to see that so far as we've been reading through the history of Israel, they don't have a king. This very important office and all of the Bible stories we know about the king of Israel and the divided nation and all the different kings of the northern and the southern, there's no king yet. This was a new development for them and that's what begins to take shape here. Not only are we going to be introduced to Saul, but we're going to be introduced to Saul because we are now seeing the groundwork laid for the establishment and the building of the king of Israel. We saw that the events that led up to this demand in verses 1 through 3 are pretty sad. Right? We, as I said, Samuel... The, chapter 7 ends with this beautiful repentance and it talks about how Samuel uh, led Israel all the days of his life. and He was faithful... But for some reason, his two sons, whom he mistakenly appoints as judges, are not faithful like him. So here's the situation in Israel. We now have kind of a, a prime leader and two wicked sons. Does that sound familiar? History has just repeated itself in the life of Samuel. Now, I wish we had more about how did this happen? How did, how did a righteous man have wicked sons? You know, this would, be, this would be, if God gave us more, a great opportunity to preach a sermon on parenting. But but the text doesn't find that important. What what role did Samuel, was Samuel a great father and it just, you can do the best you can do and sometimes it still doesn't work out? Or was this maybe an area where Samuel really was weak? Maybe he was a little too devoted to Israel and not to his children. I don't know, the text doesn't tell us, so we don't really know. All we do know is that Samuel's sons are not like Samuel. They're more like the sons of Eli. And so Israel says, we're not doing this again. We are not doing this again. Why can't we just be like the other nations around us? The other nations around us don't have this problem because they have a king. So they go to Samuel and they demand, make us a king. But we see in four through six, after they make this demand that Samuel takes it personally. That they are essentially telling Samuel, we no longer want your leadership, you're old. We don't trust your judgment. You made these sons leaders. We don't want you anymore. He takes it personally. But as Samuel goes in verses 7 through 18, he brings this request to God. They're really not a request, it's a demand. He brings Israel's demand to God, and God reminds him, don't take it personally. This isn't really about you, it's about me. He says, they have not rejected you, but me. Which is just an important reminder for us to remember The words, for example, Jesus mentions this in John chapter 15 when he says, the world will hate you, but remember, they hated me first. Why did Jesus say that? What's the point in saying that? Jesus is communicating that when the world hates you for your Christianity, now sometimes we as Christians sin and give the world good reasons to hate us. But when the world hates us for our righteousness, for our Christianity, what Jesus is reminding us is they don't actually hate you. They hate the Jesus in you. But this is an attack on God, not you. Christian persecution is not an attack ultimately on the church, it's an attack on God. And that's why, by the way, when Jesus appears to Saul on on the road to Damascus, you know what Jesus tells? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus was long ascended, he was persecuting Christians. But why does Jesus take that? That's me. That's the body of Christ. Persecuting me. Samuel's learning this lesson the hard way. They don't dislike you, Samuel. They dislike the God that you are promoting. And they take it out on you. So they come, Samuel goes to God and tells him of Israel's demand. And in this begins one of the most difficult relationships to harmonize in all of the Old Testament. And that relationship is God's relationship To the king of Israel. And I don't mean the person who occupies that office. I mean the office itself. The Old Testament presents to us a very difficult relationship with a lot of tension. And here's what I mean by that, to put it in very clear terms. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would get sort of a mixed bag whenever God shares his opinion on whether Israel needs a king or not. Sometimes God speaks very highly of the idea of a king being in Israel. Other times he speaks not so highly. And so we're going to harmonize that in a second. But let's focus first on how is the king of Israel presented in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Well, it's clearly a very negative presentation. It's very, very clearly. As we just said, for example, God clearly does not want them to have a king. And he takes their demand for one as a rejection of him as being king. So in a certain sense, God thinks they have a king. They want a different one. They don't want God as king. They want someone else. So God sees this as really an act of rebellion against him. But more to the point, God tells them, you want a king? (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. Because what's going to happen when they get a king? Let's read that section again. This is what Samuel tells them in verse 11. These will be the ways of the king. He will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of 50, and some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male, male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work he will take the 10th of your flocks and you shall be slaves. God is telling them trust me you don't want a king. You don't want a king. Once you give someone a single man that kind of power, that kind of authority, you've lost everything. He can come and take from you what he wants when he wants for whatever reason he wants. So really, he's God is telling them you are no longer free. And can we just just for a brief moment I know this isn't really the focus of this text, but can we for a brief moment lament our current situation here in America? Let me be honest with you. Judging by our circumstances, this doesn't sound so bad. This is supposed to be a threat. Samuel is threatening them. Samuel is saying, you guys are enjoying a lot of freedom, and if the king comes, you're going to lose all this freedom. And guess what? We live here in America, have it significantly worse than this. Well, maybe not in some areas. But generally speaking, we do not enjoy the freedom that even a tyrannical leader would give them. Let me just give you one amazing example. There's a book, Restoring America, One County at a Time. Really, really good book, and he just focuses on this chapter. He just focuses just on the taxation part. We're not even going to focus on drafting, taking your sons, and forcing them to go to war against their will. Taking you have no private property under the king. You you can own what you want, but he can take it at any time. By the way, that's called a property tax. You can own a house, but you can buy a house cash. Government can still come and take it from you whenever they want. That means you're a slave. We do not live with liberty in this country. Do not be fooled by the patriotic American songs that talk about liberty rolling through the land like a waterfall, like a river. We do not live in liberty in this country. Let me give you just one example from the taxation then I promise we'll we'll move on. This is what he mentions. When Samuel warns the Israelites against the adoption of a king like the other nations, he spells out the tyranny that would follow. Among the list of confiscations and enslavements to come, Samuel warns that such a king will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. In other words, when the civil government assumed the right to a 10% income tax, this evidenced an absolute, unimaginable tyranny equivalent to outright slavery. For when the civil ruler assumes the right to extract as much as God himself demands, then the civil government is exalting itself above God, saying essentially that its work is more important than the work of God himself. Thus, while there is no explicit number in scripture for civil taxes, Samuel certainly indicates that a 10% income tax has already far exceeded the maximum for a free society. At this point, don't call it taxation. Call it what it is, slavery. Hardly any Western nation on earth today has a total tax burden below 30%. A couple are slightly below. Several are well over 40%. This means that nearly every Western nation today needs to slash its tax burden by at least 66% just in order to return to Samuel's standard of tyrannical slavery. That's how bad things have gotten. And they don't appear to be getting better. God warns them, when you get a king, you lose your liberty. And they said, well, we want safety. We want... What do they say? We want a king who goes out before us and fights our battle. You keep your liberty, we'll take safety. Let me tell you something. Biblically speaking, we are never to choose safety over liberty. Give us liberty or give us death. That's not patriotism. That's freedom. It's biblical freedom. But I digress. The reason this is so complicated is because you read chapter 8. It's like, man, God really hates this king thing. Right? God really hates this king thing. But that's not entirely true. Because what you'll be shocked to find, we're not going to read this today, but Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is the law which predates for Samuel 8, that's the law given through Moses. So before Samuel's even born, God gives them a law. In Deuteronomy 17, he says, when you get into the land and appoint yourselves a king, here's the list of requirements that he needs to fit under. So God sort of foresaw and even gave them a standard. Here, here's, here's what you need to do with your future king. And if you were to read through the book of Judges, for example, this is a huge issue. The book of Judges is a really violent, entertaining book. Uh, a lot of death, a lot of chaos. And those are almost always, at least towards the end of the book, it's almost always summarized by the author saying, because there was no king in the land in that day, every one did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges seems to give us this representation like the king was a very important moral unifier. That the king was needed to unify the country and give them a shared vision and behavioral standards. And as we already mentioned, I mean, the king of Israel becomes incredibly important as God makes the Davidic covenant. And as Jesus comes to fulfill the role of the king, and as Jesus is said to be the fulfillment of the king of Israel, he currently sits on David's throne in heaven. So we, we sort of have a mixed bag uh, if we look at it from a bird's eye view. And so here's how I want us to harmonize these things, and then we can really, once we do that, take away what God wants us to take away from this text. And here's how I really believe is the best way to understand First Samuel chapter 8. God wants them to have a king, but the timing and the manner are very important. I think it is God's ultimate plan for them to have a king, which is why he gave them standards in the law, but they're not ready for it yet. And not only are they not ready for it yet, the manner in which they've approached God is extremely inappropriate. If you remember, Israel is still right now very early. This is They're still in a testing phase. They're still receiving much revelation from God. They're still in infancy as a nation, if you will, developing. And I think God's position is they still have too much to learn about what it looks like to depend on him and to trust in him before they go electing a king. That's why when God tells Samuel, notice what he tells Samuel. He basically tells Samuel, listen, I know this hurts, but trust me, you get used to it. This isn't my first rodeo with Israel. Ever since I've released them from Egypt, it's been nothing but, oh, they kind of love me, and then they betray me, and they start worshiping idols, and then they kind of love me, and then they backslide, and then they kind of love me. I think God's point is, When they have learned to trust me and obey me and put their hope in me, then we'll start addressing the situation in Israel's government a little bit more. But they haven't learned to trust God yet. And notice the manner in which they approach this kingship thing. Notice they don't say, you know, this is interesting. All the other nations have a king. What does God think about this? Do you think he'd be okay with us trying this out? Samuel you're our, our mediator would you, would you ask God on our behalf we want to know what he says about this why don't we have a king notice they don't approach it like we want to hear from God they approach Samuel give us a king and then Samuel goes and says you know God says no we don't care give us a king so in other words uh, I think the best way of understanding it is that God here is lamenting the timing and the manner of their desire not the desire itself I don't think God is upset that they see a need for a king of Israel or necessarily want a king, but the timing and the manner of it is really inappropriate. And so in this particular circumstance, God is not happy with their demands for a king. Yet they're obstinate, they refuse, and so God grants their request. And so how does the text ultimately end? Well, what the text ends with is that the people of God have been overcome by their desire to look like the world. I said that their motive for wanting to have a king was wrong. What does the text tell us two separate times, beginning and end? What's the main reason they want a king? The other nations. You don't think that that bothers God? Listen, God, I know that you've set us up with a priest and judges and elders. I know that you've set us up with a plurality of leadership, of checks and balances. But you know what? We really like what the Philistines have going on. You know, there was a poll done among the Amorites and uh, in that poll over 85% of all Amorite people said that they are satisfied or well satisfied with their political leadership. We did a similar poll here in Israel, only 76% are satisfied. So the numbers tell us, God, you know, the kingship makes people happier. We need to to be like the Amorites. You know, we came from Egypt and while we didn't like it there, that was a well-oiled machine that Egypt was. They got a lot done. Very powerful nation, very well protected nation. Why aren't we doing it more like Egypt? They are motivated by their desire to look like the world. They are convinced the world has hit something that God missed. The nations have it right, the Word of God has it wrong. Maybe to use New Testament language, Israel has lost its saltiness. God chose these people to be a unique people. He chose them out of the world to be a unique kingdom that didn't look like the world. That's the whole point of this enterprise is you're not supposed to look like the world. This is supposed to be a unique nation with unique laws and unique standards and unique worship. You're not supposed to base what you do off of what your neighbor's doing, what the world is doing, what other nations are doing. And once salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? And so this becomes a very important lesson for us because the New Testament tells us that the failures of the Old Testament serve as an example for us today. We are the new Israel. We are the the church, the people of God, the community of God. And so we have to look at this and say that these are our temptations. These are our proclivities. We too, the Bible calls the Christian nation as a royal nation, a holy nation, sanctified, set apart, In the world, but not of the world. We are not called to model the world, to look like the world, but to be distinct from the world. To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We have a distinct, sanctified role. And so the kingdom of God is never called to submit its standards, to submit the way it lives, the way it's governed, according to the ways of the world. So, this is sort of the main idea. I boiled it down into this. What lesson are we learning from 1 Samuel 8? It's this The people of God must adhere to the Word of God in order to avoid worldly living. What do we learn from 1 Samuel 8? The people of God must adhere to the Word of God in order to avoid worldly living. We must fight against all desires and temptations to abandon God's revelation and instead conform ourselves to the patterns and the ways of the world. And so I would encourage you in your own lives during the week to really examine yourself. What are some of the areas in your life that maybe you've lacked some personal discernment in? What are some of the areas in your life where you are tempted to think the world got something right and God got it wrong? What are some of the areas in your life where you just are so quick to say, that's what everyone else does, so let's do it? Without ever asking, what does God have to say on the subject? It's important for us in our daily lives, in our lives as families throughout the week, to always remind ourselves that we have the same temptations and proclivities that Israel has. We have the same temptations to say, you know what? I really like how the world does this. I'm not so crazy about what the Bible tells me to do here. And so I, I want to conclude with just four. The, the, this, the application this is very personal, right? I mean, you go through your life. Ha, how what are the ways in which you are tempted? to not be transformed by the renewing of your mind but to be conformed to the ways of this world. But let me just give from the text four applications of this main idea that I think have some kind of universal broad application to all of us. Here are some important areas of life that we can put this thesis into application. And the first one I think is potentially the most obvious and it's this. Do not put too much confidence in your political leaders. Do not put too much hope And confidence in your political leaders. That is a very obvious application of this text. What is Israel doing? We need need someone to judge us. Well, God's given you judges. Well, we need someone who judges us better. And we need someone who's going to go out and fight our battles for us. Which is weird because you want to know what happened the last time we were in 1 Samuel? Israel didn't even fight. They stayed on the hill and they worshipped and God drove their enemies out. How quickly they have forgotten. We need someone to fight our battles for us. We need this. We need that. So what are they doing? Ultimately, they're putting all their hope in a king. God is saying, listen, I can fight your battles for you. I can be your king. I can continue to lead you if you would just repent and obey me. I can continue. No, we we really, we need a king. They've lost hope in God. They've lost trust in the sufficiency of God's power and his word. And they're putting all their eggs in the basket of if we just had a king. That's going to make things better, right? Now, I'm hesitant to say this because it needs qualification. And here's why. I see this said, especially this last year, in the middle of an election cycle, as I sort of have seen Christian conversations online, this charge to not put too much hope in political leaders, oftentimes is used as a club. It's oftentimes used to manipulate you. And so let me be very careful that that's not intentionally what I am not doing. Well, in my experience, not with the people in this church, but just online and past experiences that I had, don't put your hope in political leaders or anything akin to that. Donald Trump isn't the Messiah. Those kinds of things, those kinds of language. Typically, in my experience, they're used in a context where it, they're just, the person is just trying to sound more pious than you. And the person is just kind of trying to avoid all kind of political conversation. And the easiest way to do that is just to make you feel like an idolater. Like the second you share a political opinion, well, maybe you shouldn't worship politics oh goodness, I I didn't know I was doing that. Sorry. Right? I've seen it. It's like a club. It's like the second you express any kind of passionate care about what's happening in this country, don't worship your political leaders. The president isn't the Messiah. Jesus is king. It's like this pious whip that really is just kind of a cowardice avoiding of all important conversations. So I want to be very clear that that's not what I am doing with this first application. Christians should care very much about the political conditions of their nation. Christians should care very much about their political leaders. This is why Deuteronomy 17 gave them a standard. When you have a king, it needs to look like this. God cares about what your king looks like. Paul tells us in the New Testament that we need to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. Paul knows the leadership over you greatly affects your Christianity. And we don't want life to be unnecessarily hard. We don't want the church to be persecuted. So our political leadership matters. So this first point, do not hear me say that Christians are not allowed to care about politics or be invested in politics or care about their political leaders. That couldn't be farther from the truth. That's not biblical. Christians should care. We should be invested. We should lead the charge in this nation in holding political leaders to righteous biblical standards. But, so with that qualification in mind, there's still, there is no doubt here that even if I can't draw that line for you right now in every circumstance of your life, Israel has shown us though that caring about politics can cross a line. It can. And you can cross a line to where you have put too much hope in your king. You have put too much hope in your political leaders. And so this is just a reminder for all of us to examine ourselves, especially in light of an election, which I'm assuming just based on what I know by this church, most people in this church, if not all, are not happy with how things turned out, how they played out in this country. And that's okay to be unhappy with it. But let me just remind you that you can take your ideal conservative candidate and make him president, and the United States of America still has a lot of problems. And a lot of those problems are not structural problems. They're spiritual problems. And that's something a king, a president, a congress, a legislator cannot address. We have spiritual, cultural rot in this country. And that's something legislation can't address. So we need to stay balanced. We need to care and be involved in politics. But we need to remember that ultimately America turns around as the spirit goes, not as the president goes. America will be changed by the gospel not by legislation so we need to keep that in mind care about politics but do not put all your hope in a king I promise you he's going to let you down do not put all your spiritual hope in a pastor I promise you he's going to let you down these things matter but God is still sovereign Uh, another application we take from this simple one but important one Is never forsake God's government for man's government never forsake God's government for man's government in this text we're dealing with what we call the civil government who is going to rule and run and judge a nation and believe it or not the Bible actually has a lot to say about civil governments the Bible considers itself an authority over civil governments The Bible presents Jesus as Lord of the nation, so Jesus has an authoritative position over civil governments. So according to Scripture, civil governments are supposed to order and structure based on the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible has much to say about civil governments, but I think one of the biggest attacks that I'm witnessing in evangelical America today is attacking a different area of God's government. You see, God has given primarily three governmental structures in scripture. There's civil government, which is the government of a nation. There's ecclesiastical government, which is the government of the church. And then there's family, familial government, the government of the family. And God has much to say about all of these areas of life, and he's even given us an ordered structure of authority in those areas. And then I am seeing today that the family is under attack, not just by the pagans in the world, but even by self-professing Christians. God's government for the family, and really even into the church as well, is directly under attack. We refer to this as egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is a worldview, is a philosophy that says when it comes to men and women, there are no differences of authority. A woman can hold any position that a man holds. A man can hold any position that a woman holds. They're equal. And this is spilling into the church. And let me just say, unapologetically, it's not true. Over and over again in our New Testament, when it deals with the family, what does the New Testament say? Wives submit to your husbands. That's an authority structure, and it's not an equal one. Wives submit to husbands. Children submit to parents. So from the children's perspective, it's equal if you're a child in here, what mom says goes. What dad said goes. You obey both your parents equally. But when it comes to the husband-wife relationship, wives submit to your husbands. It's very clear. Paul is very clear in the pastoral epistles. Women cannot be elders. The Bible's not embarrassed by this talk. The Bible's not embarrassed, humiliated by this kind of language. It's very simple. It's very clear. Yet we have, even within evangelical ranks, people pointing to what? The world. The world. Oh, this this doesn't make sense that we would have authority structures because what does the world prove? Women can do any job just as good as a man. There are women CEOs, so why can't a woman run the church? There are single moms, why can't a woman run her family? And there is an attack to make the authority distinctions that God has made and obliterate them. There was a famous one where a woman Bible teacher named Beth Moore just recently left the Southern Baptist Convention and as she left, she had a big... Parade, lamenting, I'm so sorry for, for perpetuating the Southern Baptist's hierarchy of men over women. And the Southern Baptist hasn't given women enough chances to teach the word of God in the church and enough chances to lead the word of God. I'm so sorry. So what is she doing? And her and so many people who call themselves Christians are lamenting that there's still those old, outdated, patriarchal churches that think the Bible actually says things like, wives, submit to your husbands. How dare they? Because that's not what we believe anymore today. So what are they doing? We like the world's government for the church better than God's. We like the world's standard of family better than God's. You know, you can run the polls. There are tons of European, secular European countries. Those families are perfectly happy and they don't believe these archaic, outdated family structures. I would encourage you, when it comes to the government of the family... When it comes to the government of the church, when it comes to the government of the state, what God says is far more important than what the world says. Don't ever be embarrassed by what God has said. Let them be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Never forsake God's government for man's. Application number 3. We need to avoid what we call the fallacy of mass appeal. We need to teach our children to avoid the fallacy of mass appeal. What does that mean? That means the fallacy of mass appeal is a logical fallacy that suggests something must be true because so many people believe it, right? Like a a minority position can never be true because there's just too many smart people out there who disagree with it. Now, why do I say that? Because what do we have in 1 Samuel 8? We have two people who want one form of government, and then we have the rest of the world who wants another, All of the nations, you can pull all the nations, they say, yeah, a king is better. You can pull all of Israel, and other than Samuel, and I'd say maybe his corrupt sons, but they're in it for the wrong reason. So Samuel and his corrupt sons are the only people in all of Israel who don't want a king. So they must be wrong. There's no way. All of these brilliant thinking people, the Egyptians were brilliant people. Do you know that? The Egyptians were not dumb. We love in our day and age to look back on history as if these people were so stupid because they didn't have Googles and iPhones. Were brilliant nations. Rome, Egypt, there were nations in history that would amaze you if you did just a little bit of reading on some of the things they figured out and accomplished and did. Egypt, these were smart people. They wanted Pharaoh. The Philistines were smart people. They wanted a king. All of these smart, advanced, well produced nations, and they all want a king. All of Israel wants a king, so Samuel must be wrong. But we know that Samuel is not wrong, he is in the minority but truth is not determined by a vote. This becomes very important, especially if your children ever make the decision to go off to college one day, they will most likely find themselves in a classroom of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, 300, upwards of 500 people. And they might be the only one in that classroom who believes Christianity is true. And their professor's really smart. Their fellow... Majors are all, these are really smart people. How could they all be wrong and I be right? Truth is not determined by vote. So don't ever feel like Christianity can't be true because it's in the minority. Last application, number four. This is also very important. The word of God is always relevant. The word of God is always relevant. I kind of already hinted at this, but you know what I see in this text? I see even as ancient as this text is, as old as this story is, what do we already have the people of God saying? The Bible needs to keep up with the times. We think that this is a modern thing. We think that, well, now that we have science, now the Bible's outdated. People have been claiming the word of God is outdated since this chapter. <laughs> this is not a new accusation. These are already people saying, listen, I know God gave us Samuel and Judges, and, but uh, times have changed. Look at the nations. We don't do that stuff anymore. We have kings now. Okay, can the Bible just get with the program? Can we just modify this a little bit? The assumption is that the word of God is already outdated. The word of God is already irrelevant. The word of God is already not up to the times. They're asking Samuel, could you update the word of God for us, please? We really need a king. And so let me just remind you, the Bible doesn't need updating. The world does. The Bible doesn't need updating. The world does. The Bible is as relevant to us today as it has ever been to any generation that has ever lived. The word of God is always crucially relevant. So those are four applications I'm getting from this text. But again, the thesis is that the people of God must adhere to the word of God to avoid worldly living. So I would call you this week to spend time thinking all the ways of your life, from the small to the big, what are some of the ways that you have been tempted to follow the worlds before consulting God? So be careful what you wish for. Be careful, should we say, what you pray for. God always knows best. Trust the word of the Lord and live your lives not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind.